0: Good morning, Southside. Good to see everybody this morning. Let's pray and then we will turn our attention to Scripture. Father, I thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for the grace and the hope that we find in Christ. And Father, this morning, as we seek to be clear about who Jesus is, both in our hearts and in our lives and the people we talk to, Father, I I pray that as we we look at your word this morning, that we'll be challenged by it, that we'll be encouraged by it, that we'll be spurred on to deeper and further faithfulness. And Father, I pray for for myself as I deliver this. God, I pray that you would uh, do a work in me um, as I uh, deliver your word. God, I also pray for those who are listening and that you would uh, give them clarity of attention and heart and mind and spirit. God, let the uh, cares of this week uh, kind of just drift away for, for one hour so that we can focus on you and allow the Holy Spirit to to speak to our hearts and to our minds this morning. And God, we pray that the power of Jesus would be evident and that the movement of the Holy Spirit can be tangible. And Father, we we pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to be in Acts chapter 5. We're going to be in Acts chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. Acts chapter 5, verses 27 and 32. And as you're turning to that passage in Scripture this morning, I want to give a little context for this passage. According to Scripture, it was the Sadducees' jealousy that motivated them to put the apostles in a public prison. And by God's grace, the apostles were freed from that prison by an angel of the Lord and entered the temple complex and began to preach the gospel. The Sadducees were confused at the apostles' escape and were very angry that they continued to preach the gospel at the temple. So instead of immediately having the apostles killed or put to death or thrown back into prison, the council decided to have the apostles brought in for further questioning. And so that's where we pick up. We pick up with the council and the Sadducees and everybody having this discussion regarding uh, what to do with the apostles and uh, the apostles' response. So again, Acts chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. And Luke writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit where it says in verse 27, and when they had brought them, they set them before the council. That's the apostles. They set the apostles before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in his name. Yet here you you fill Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter answered the apostles, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and saviour to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. So this morning, my goal is for us, when we leave, I want us to understand a few core things about this passage. I want us to understand that when there is a conflict or when in conflict, Christians value obedience to God Over-obedience to human authority when in conflict, when that conflict cannot be resolved. Two, obedience to God over man doesn't mean dismissing or disrespecting human authority. And the third is that the apostles were clear about Jesus. They were clear about who He was. So verse 27 and 28 say this, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in his name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, as I say often, the things we don't read in Scripture, the things we don't read about in Scripture, can be important for us to learn from as well. What we don't read about in verse 27, or we don't see recorded because it didn't happen, is the apostles reacting to those who arrested them and brought them back into the council. We don't see them reacting or responding to those individuals with disgust. We don't see them reacting with indignance. We don't see them responding uh, violently against the council nor do we see the apostles taking this as an opportunity to kind of take pot shots at the council in front of the people that they were preaching to. They certainly had the opportunity to do that, but they did not. When the Senate police showed up to arrest the apostles, the apostles, from everything we read in this passage, weren't shouting disrespectful or belittling or condescending names towards those who were arresting them. Or about the Sadducees. They didn't say things like, I told you, as they were being drugged, I told you that these so-and-sos would do this. Or they didn't say, look how angry and insecure the council is to bring us all in again because we're just preaching. They didn't say, just wait, they'll do the same thing to you. We don't read that the apostles did any of this. From from everything that we get in terms of the context and what was written in Luke, we see that they were seized and they went quietly and willingly. Now, in light of how the early church viewed persecution and and the stance they took on persecution, persecution when people would come after them and say things or even do things that were harsh or maybe even violent toward them. I'm going to be bold and make an inference here about maybe how they felt when they were arrested and how they felt at this moment. I I get the distinct impression from everything that I read in Scripture here and from the text that the apostles seemed to go willingly and readily. It may not have been their desire. Of course, they didn't want to go. It wasn't something that they were excited about. But when the apostles were confronted with the prospect of being arrested for Jesus' name, we don't see a violent or harsh response from them. But it seems as if, from everything that I've understood about how the early Christians viewed persecution, that they went willingly and readily for a purpose. The apostles more than likely, saw this as perhaps an opportunity rather than a curse. They saw it as an opportunity to speak on behalf of the goodness and the worthiness of Christ and to plead with those who sentenced Jesus to the cross in the first place. Remember, these Sadducees are probably part of the council that condemned Jesus to death in the first place. And they probably saw it, the apostles saw it, as an amazing opportunity for them to witness to and, and even perhaps even convince, convince those who just a short time ago sentenced Jesus to the cross. And what a, what a, I think what a tremendous proof of grace this would have been if these doctors of the law, these highly educated doctors of Torah, as they would fancy themselves, what if what if they would have been convinced and and added to the church if it finally clicked in the council's mind and the heart that the old testament was all about Jesus the entire time Jesus himself said something similar to the religious leaders almost probably some of these same religious leaders in the gospel of John let's look at the gospel of John chapter 5 verse 37 through 40. Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 37 through 40. And as you're turning there again, I think it's mind-blowing that that Jesus may have been talking to perhaps some of the same Sadducees that we're reading about in Acts when He said what He says in John chapter 5. Again, we're in John chapter 5, verse 37 through 40. Uh, You'll have it there in your word, and it'll be also on the screen. And it says this this is Jesus' Jesus's own words. And he says, And the Father who sent me, so he makes an attachment to his uh, equality with the Father, he says, Sent me, born witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. He's talking about himself. Verse 39. You search the Scriptures. He's talking about the old, what we would call the Old Testament Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about who? Me. And so Jesus makes it very clear that the entire Old Testament or what we would refer to as the Old Testament is referring to Jesus or pointing to Jesus or pointing to a time when Jesus would come. It says, they bear witness about me, and verse 40 finishes. And he says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have what? Life. So Jesus is making it very clear of the attachment that he has, not only to God, but also the fact that he is the one that dispenses eternal life. He says, you come to me for life. And what an amazing proof of grace that would have been if these apostles could have convinced these Sadducees that what we read, what Jesus said to them probably less than a year in the past was right there, true, still right in front of them. What, what, a, what a great thing that would have been for the church. It, it has the potential, I think, to be very instructive for us in how we interact with those in our lives who need their lives transformed by Jesus. When the apostles were brought in, we don't read that they were intimidated. We don't read that they were apprehensive regarding these teachers and doctors of the law. When the apostles were brought in, we don't see any type of hesitation on their part. We didn't see them intimidated by the Sadducees' title. We didn't see them intimidated by their education. And and more so, even their power that the Sadducees had, even, even to, to condemn them to, to prison for the rest of their life or even have them executed. But we don't read any type of intimidation factor from them onto the apostles. And in fact, the apostles, and I'm, I'm going to make a really, I think, a pretty good educated guess here based on the context of everything I'm reading, that the apostles thought it was an incredible opportunity to have a private, closed-door meeting with those with this kind of power. Again, who better to hear the gospel than those who already believe they are God's spokesmen in the first place? What a, who better than to, to, to witness to? And wherever you find yourself, wherever you find yourself this morning, never allow someone else's position, education, title, or power keep you from sharing the truth of what God's done in your life. with them. But you don't need to be worried about that. You don't need to be scared of that. Well, maybe this person's smarter than me or, or they have something over on me or, or maybe I'm just going to not make sense. Trust me, the Holy Spirit will take care of your words. We're called to be obedient in that. So regardless of, of whether this person has authority over you or power that might intimidate you a little bit, we're still called to be lights and to, be, uh, to, to, to talk to other people about Christ. And it just may be that you've built up relationships and a reputation wherever you find yourself, whether it's at work or school, wherever you find yourself, that God has been preparing to use for this very moment when you speak on behalf of the gospel. The truth is, you may not be the one who makes the, quote, huge impact in your city or state. However, you could easily impact the one who does. So always speak. Always share with somebody about what God has done in your life. This is why we need, furthermore, this is why we need strong believers in all areas of life, not just in church pulpits, when, when someone has a passion for the Lord, it, it doesn't always mean they're called to full-time vocational ministry. When someone has a passion for the Lord, they're needed in fields of education, management, law, academia, business, medicine, administration. Believers are needed in factories, front offices, law enforcement, public service, food service big box stores, and local small businesses. All of these things need need dedicated Christian employees and managers and owners. So will you as a believer make the most of the opportunity that God just simply lays at your feet, at your places of business? It doesn't always mean giving a gospel presentation every single time. Sometimes it It may mean exhibiting the type of character that is distinctly Christian that matches your confession. It may also mean being a Christ-like presence consistently day in, day out in your place of business so that when people come to you, they're doing so because they know for a fact that you are a person of integrity and you're going to point them back to Christ. It's being a person who is willing to share Scripture with, and pray for bosses, employees, co-workers, fellow students, instead of gossiping about them or treating them with disrespect. The apostles could have absolutely hated that they were brought in again, and hated those who brought them in again. And from every metric, it seems that they almost had the right to. Here they are again. They were going to throw us in the prison again. They're going to threaten us with beatings. They're going to threaten us with our life. Of course they had every reason to feel anger toward these people. But it seems as if the apostles used this instead of an opportunity to get them, but as an opportunity to share the glory of Christ with them. They saw it as opportunities to share the gospel. They could have chosen to acquiesce to human authority and just never spoken again about Christ and kept their mouth shut about Jesus, but they chose to spoke, speak the truth anyway. And I want you to take a moment, just right where you are, in your seat. I want you to take a moment and let the Holy Spirit bring to mind a situation that you may be facing right now. One that may not be ideal or something you've struggled with, to face head-on, and consider how perhaps, just perhaps, God has chosen you, specifically you, not somebody else, but you, to be His light in that place or that situation. And I dare say, if, if we think about it, not for a long time. It may be very quick. That we can think of something in our head that, man, I need to be the source of light, the source of truth, and the source of grace in my workplace or wherever I find myself. It may even be within your own family. It may even be within your own marriage. You never know. But think about that. Let, let the Holy Spirit bring that to mind. And as we move forward, keep that in mind as, as we continue to talk. Okay? The Sadducees They tried their best to pin the apostles as being theological lawbreakers according to the Old Testament law. And you'll see at the end of this verse, uh, they accuse the apostles of slander. The council accused the apostles of teaching the, the people that the Sadducees, it was the Sadducees who had killed Jesus, which by all account is absolutely true but they were still trying to to make the disciples feel as if they did something wrong. But look at verse 28 and what it says. says, Verse 28 says, We strictly charged you, we told you not to do this. And it was on the basis of, they were trying to say, because of our authority, you cannot do this anymore. And this forced the apostles' hand to say, well, if you're going to make me choose between obedience to man and obedience to God, well, guess what? I'm going to be obedient to God every single time. Look again, it says, we told you or we charged you, we commanded you not to do this. We charged you not to teach in this name. You can teach, but just not in Jesus' name. You can talk and do good deeds, just don't do it in Jesus' name. But the apostle said, no, if we're going to do these things, we're going to do them in a certain way. We're going to have a theological frame for for why we teach and for why we do good works. It says, yet... Here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us? The Sadducees, in their their lostness, accused the apostles of being theological lawbreakers because they were faithful to the command to preach the resurrection of Christ and not what the council said. Because you didn't obey what I said the, the, the council made the connection. Therefore, I'm going to put you into prison, or I'm going to have you executed. This is a very, this is a very damaging and scary threat to them. And this has remarkable application for us as as modern Christians in 2022. Has remarkable things for us to consider as a church, both small C and big C. If we're going to be biblically minded Christians. Christ-faithful Christians who want to live faithful, again, to Christ and His church, we have to acknowledge that Scripture makes the case that part of what it means, part of what it means to be a member of a local body is to be under certain structures of leadership. Not structures installed by an outside governing body, but by the type of leadership that is ordained in Scripture and appointed by local congregations. The nuance for us as biblically-minded Christians is how would a church, or even more specifically Southside, or any church, move forward if those in leadership, I'm talking about a pastor or deacons or Sunday school teachers, wherever, began to or started to try to or attempt to persuade the congregation to move in a direction or adopt theology that's clearly and undoubtedly anti-Christian. This is different from having a personal disagreement with somebody or having slightly different perspectives on uh, certain theological issues, like third-level tertiary issues. How should a church respond when it's clear, and I mean abundantly clear, that its pastor or its deacons or elders or whomever in leadership are teaching and asking things of the congregation that are contrary to the gospel of Christ. For example, what if for hypothetical reasons, okay, I hope everybody hears me. For hypothetical reasons, I wanted to open church membership to those of different religions Okay, if I said, if you, you can be a Muslim and be a member here, or you can be a Buddhist or a Hindu and be a member here at Southside? What if I encouraged us to reject the deity of Jesus and his bodily resurrection, or that salvation is not exclusively found in Jesus by faith through grace alone? In those situations, in those situations, church members prayerfully keep their eyes on Jesus. And it's something I want you to hold on to this as we move forward in the culture and we move in a more continually secular direction. We we keep our eyes firmly fixed on Christ. We plead with the leadership if they refuse to change. We reject that leadership of those leaders and side with Scripture every single time. Every single time. We can't just go, well, there are leaders, they, can te- they probably know a little bit more. No, you have a Bible. This is one of the beautiful things about everybody having access to Scripture is that you can read it and you can know it. Just as much as a pastor can preach and teach, the congregation can hold its leaders accountable to what we read in Scripture. And so when the apostles said, no, you're not my authority because what you're trying to tell me is explicitly anti-Christian, therefore, we do not obey you. We obey God alone. Notice at the end of verse 28 where the Sadducees say, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So the apostles are accused of slander when in reality they were accountable. The Sadducees were accountable for the death of Christ. In fact, one of the few times the Sadducees and the Pharisees got along in their whole history with each other was when they were united in the common purpose of opposing Jesus and to have Him put to put to death and have Him crucified. This was kind of like the, the theological equivalent of the Republicans and the Democrats. Okay? And uh, they had a lot of similarities to those parties too. But anyway... The council probably wanted to make the case and say, hey, look, it wasn't us. It was, it was those those Pharisees who wanted to crucify Jesus. Don't look at us. Remember, it's the Romans who used cross. Go, go talk to them. We aren't the ones who are accountable, but they were. They were absolutely accountable. So in one little conversation, there's this, and I'm going to be bold here, there's this whiny sounding threat from the Sadducees that the apostles don't listen to to the council or give them their proper due as authority. Mixed with this language that seeks to absolve them as not complicit in the crucifixion of Jesus instead of responding to the council with equal anger and cruelty, Peter instead does something remarkable. Peter, who's usually the most impulsive and reactionary one in the bunch, recognize that obedience to God over man doesn't mean dismissing them harshly or disrespecting that human authority. Verse 29 says, But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. This verse does not say, Peter and the apostles answered, don't tell me what to do. We only answer to God. We can act, say, however we want and, however, and act however we choose. And furthermore, we don't answer to a bunch of murderers. This is not how Peter answered. He answered with grace. He answered with clarity. But he was not rude and he was not disrespectful the entire time. Peter doesn't answer with a tone of, of immature defiance. But instead, he's humble, he's steadfast, he's truthful, and he's resolute. He doesn't imply that human authority doesn't exist, but he's clear that when the demands of either the state or religious authorities directly contradict the Word of God, it's God who must be obeyed every single time. This is something that quite a few Christians might need to process. There can be a slippery slope when we read a passage like, we must obey God rather than men. That leads away from, if we're not reading with a prayerful heart, can lead us away from a humble stance on obedience to a position of defiance. I'm only going to obey God. I don't have to listen to you kind of a stance. A position that implies or even says outright, I don't care what you think, I only care what God thinks. And to a certain degree, that can be true. We can't live our whole lives as believers looking over our shoulder for the approval of others. But on the other, hand, other end of the spectrum, our lives are to be lived examples. Ones that others can look to. For example, in an effort to be the best parent that I can be, it's helpful to take into account how my kids would view my actions and my words in light of the faith I profess. This doesn't mean we live fake lives or live for the approval of others. It doesn't. Obeying God and not men shouldn't be said as a statement of defiance. It should come off as a humble stance when applied correctly. Obeying God and not men shows we're not, as the Scripture says, tossed to and fro between the culture and our Christian faith. And it actually shows that we do value our witness to the degree that that we aren't willing to acquiesce to the outside demands when asked to compromise. Now, there's more we can say, and we're going to put a pin on it for right now. But my question to us this morning is whether, how are we living our lives? Are we living our lives so, for, for the goodness of Jesus? Are we living our lives for the gospel? Are we speaking when we need to speak? But also, are we doing so with kindness? Are we doing so with respect? And when we come to those positions in our culture, when it, it, the culture pits us against our faith in Christ, can we still say stay resolute and truthful at the same time saying, we obey God rather than men? It's a difficult balance to to hold, and it's a nuanced thing that all Christians need to Pay a lot of attention to. As the team comes and leads us this morning in a song of response, I'm going to ask us to pray for that. Keep in mind the the question that I asked you earlier. What is that situation that you faced this week or facing currently right now where you need to be the person of grace, the person of humility to bring gospel light into that situation? Let's pray and we'll sing a song of response.